Welcome to the Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of the Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. Our goal at the Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of mainstream media and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On the Hub podcast, Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should be spending more time and attention focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Sean Roberts, an Associate Professor of International Affairs and Anthropology at George Washington University. He's the author of the fascinating and thought-provoking book, The War on the Uyghurs, China's Internal Campaign Against a Muslim Minority. Thank you for joining us today, Sean, and congratulations on the book. Thank you very much for the invitation. Maybe to start the conversation, can you please give listeners a bit of background on China's Uyghur population? How long have they lived in parts of China? What's the relationship to the Chinese state? And why in your book do you argue that modern China's relationship to the Uyghurs is best characterized as colonial? Yeah, well, so the, the Uyghur population, I think, is, can be perceived of as the indigenous population of this region that's now part of the People's Republic of China. Now, of course, uh, no indigenous people really were necessarily the first inhabitants or at least it, it can't be proven. You know, the Uyghur people live in the center of Eurasia. So they're an amalgamation of numerous peoples who have crossed that area over the centuries. But when we look at the period when this region really became incorporated into first the Qing Empire, and then later the People's Republic of China, the Uyghur people had already long lived in this area and had developed a very unique culture that I think has a strong attachment to this territory as well, uh, which is part of, I think, the conflict between Uyghurs and the Chinese state, because the Chinese state has uh, its own designs on that territory, and the Uyghur people uh, are not necessarily in agreement with those. What factors have led to the central Chinese government's targeting the Uyghurs? Is there any basis to the idea that the Uyghur population is, quote, polluted by religious extremism? Yeah, so it, there's been, as I mentioned, this long, tenuous relationship with Chinese states and the Uyghur people, largely because the Uyghur people uh, view themselves as a nation and they view this territory as their homeland. But there's been, you know, different ups and downs over time with regard to their relationship with the state. There's been some periods where, particularly under the People's Republic of China, where there was a sense that perhaps uh, China was creating a more inclusive state, which encompassed the Uyghurs on their own terms with their own culture. Um, you know, right after the revolution in, in the uh, early 1950s and then again in the 1980s. But uh, I think one of the things that precipitated the increased conflict 
became the development model of the Chinese state since the 1980s. And in particular, starting in the early 90s, because China, of course, since 1980 has opened up to the world. Prior to 1980, during the years of the Cultural Revolution, it was closed off from the rest of the world. But in large, that opening up to the world is about economic trade, and it's about uh, developing their industrial base. And in the 1990s, the, the People's Republic of China already began looking at the Uyghur region as one region that needed to be further developed. I think for a long time, they viewed the region as the buffer zone to keep people out. But when China started looking outwards, all of a sudden it became an important land port or bridge to the rest mm. of the West, you know, starting with Eurasia and having roots into the Middle East and Europe, you know, which we now know uh, in, in terms of the Belt and Road Initiative. And so that's when you, you start to see more conflict. And in particular, with the fall of the Soviet Union, the Chinese Communist Party became almost paranoid about the possibility that ethnic minorities within China could separate from China and become their own states, uh, like the newly independent states of the, the former Soviet Union at that time. So there was a lot of attention to the Uyghur population, the Tibetan population, and to a lesser extent, but still some attention to the Mongolian population. And those are, those are the three populations that are, are significant in size and have a very distinct homeland that's within the borders of the People's Republic of China. In the 1980s, uh, China did liberalize, particularly in cultural spheres. So Uyghurs were able to uh, start exploring Islam again after the Cultural Revolution. And you had kind of a renaissance in Uyghur culture writ large, and that included also in terms of uh, Islam. And I believe that there was uh, a blossoming of believers in, in the region. But to say that they were necessarily extremist, I think, is very problematic. And I think that that rhetoric really starts being used as we see after 9-11, when much of the world starts to look at Islamic religiosity as something that is almost intrinsically extremist. Okay, so that's useful context, Professor Roberts, both for the relationship between the, the Uyghur people and the Chinese state and the growing attention that the central government came to pay towards this population in the aftermath of 9-11. Next, it would be useful to hear a bit about what Chinese policy has been vis-a-vis -vis the, the Uyghur population. One occasionally hears about how they're subject to mass surveillance. Some of our listeners have probably heard of these so-called re-education camps. Can you just give us a sense of what life has been like for, for the Uyghurs under this campaign of repression? Yeah. So, you know, the, there's been in, in some ways increasing repression in the region since the 1990s due to the context that I already explained. And uh, I think, again, after 9-11, that became exacerbated by um, uh, kind of the narrative of Islamic terrorism and what the Chinese government previously had called separatists. They were now calling extremists and terrorists. And, but what really, uh, there was a, a major change 
in 2017, I would say. And in fact, I started writing this book prior to that, and I was really focused on how the war on terror, the global war on terror had impacted the Uyghurs. And then I was, as I was writing it and doing my research around it, a kind of uh, transformed in real time where we saw all of a sudden after 2017, a police state like we've never seen, I, I would say anywhere, just because the technology involved it, it hasn't existed prior. And this happened rather suddenly. Uh, the first signs uh, were that those of us who have friends who are uh, Uyghurs living inside China lost contact with mm -hmm. people. And uh, Uyghurs in exile began telling us that they no longer could contact their relatives. Uh, and they were told by their relatives to no longer contact them. There were some other signs when we started to see the Chinese government demanding that Uyghur students abroad, particularly in Muslim states, return immediately to China. And then we started to see evidence of the building of these massive internment centers, prison-like structures throughout the region. Um, and uh, it immediately seemed that people were disappearing into these internment centers, uh, which we gradually learned more information about. And since 2017, uh, we've seen perhaps up to a tenth of the population going through these internment centers. We've also seen the majority of intellectuals in the community have gone directly to prison. And that started almost immediately the same time the, the internment centers were being built. And um, and the other aspect, I think, of the repression, as you mentioned, is the high tech surveillance, which really began a little bit earlier. There's evidence that the Chinese state was procuring the equipment for this already in 2014, and it started to go into effect already in 2015, 16. But basically, there's in addition to massive artificial intelligence surveillance, there's a database where data is collected on every individual that has information about your profile. And when a person goes through a checkpoint, which also appeared throughout the region, the security officers could quickly bring up your profile and decide whether you were a suspicious person, suspected perhaps of being an extremist or a potential terrorist. And that was enough to have you sent to an internment center. And really, another part of the story behind that is, I think that the dual, the dual repression of having this omnipresent surveillance and the threat of going into either a prison or an internment center has made the population unable to voice any sort of concerns with government policy. And government policy has moved more and more to outright assimilation. And that's kind of the phase that we're seeing now. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best journalism, commentary, analysis, and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter per diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. into your email inbox, you'll receive our best journalism, the thoughts and analysis of our smartest columnists and contributors, 
all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public debate. Sign up now free of charge at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Before we get into the world's response to these developments, maybe just worth underscoring the point about the context, the global war on terror, the case on the part of the Chinese government that this is part of an overall effort to address Muslim extremism within its borders. I think one of the key insights from the book is that you mostly challenge the claim that that this is a case of Muslim extremism, that, that that's by and large a, a pretext for action that is unsubstantiated. Do you, do you want to just uh, elaborate on some of your analysis with respect to the claims that this should be perceived just as other countries around the world, including, of course, ours, are involved in tackling Muslim extremism, that that's a, an unsubstantiated claim in, in your mind? Yeah, I mean, I think there there was a global overreaction in many ways to the 9-11 events. You know, uh, security experts have been saying for over a decade that the amount of money, at least in the United States, I don't know about in Canada, that's put into counterterrorism isn't justified by what threat we have seen from terrorism, right? And uh, I think another another problem with the global war on terror is that it became very much a vehicle of ethnic religious profiling. And there was an immediate suspicion that if somebody was Muslim, then they potentially were terrorists. And that I think is very dangerous in terms of kind of the way it seeps into people's consciousness. And, you know, it creates this global Islamophobia. So that's certainly part of it. Uh, I think another part of it is that um, a lot of states around the world after 9-11 began looking at any kind of domestic challenge they, they saw. And if it was a Muslim population, they immediately tried to characterize that as terrorism. And so, you know, if we look at situations, uh, there's situations in North Africa, there's situations even in the Muslim world where domestic opponents are portrayed as terrorists when they have no connection to Al Qaeda or ISIS or uh, any sort of um, necessarily even a jihadist movement. The case with the Uyghurs that's interesting is that through most of the time that the Chinese government was claiming it faced this massive terrorist threat, there were virtually no Uyghur jihadists, which is kind of odd. I mean, there's jihadists, I'm sure, from uh, most major cities in the United States and Canada, you know, and you would think this disgruntled population, there would have been a lot of Uyghur jihadists. There was a small group uh, that did make videos threatening the Chinese government, and that, I think, really aggravated the Chinese government. And then eventually uh, in Syria, we see a group of Uyghurs emerging as jihadists. And, and I talk about this in my book as a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you, mm-hmm. if you start labeling dissent as terrorism, at a certain point, people are going to uh, say, well, that maybe that's the only option. So to come to the, the world's response to these developments, we're speaking today, and just in recent weeks, we've had a high-profile American CEO 
say that, quote, nobody cares about the Uyghurs. He since apologized, of course, but his original comments does reflect an implicit view of many Western business leaders and policymakers. What do you make of the world's weak response to the treatment of, of the Uyghurs in China? Well, you know, I'm not entirely surprised. And I make this case in, in the conclusion to my book that, you know, I think that really there needs to be a grassroots uh, response to this problem because states have lots of reasons not to bring up this issue in a, in a significant way. I mean, even the United States has been vocal on this issue, but whether that's been complemented with actual substantive actions is another question. And I think that really the, the primary issue why states don't want to bring up this issue is the way that China is interconnected economically with the entire rest of the world. And there's economic consequences to be had of criticizing China on this. And one of the things we find, we've found in the last several years is from the internment camps, there's been a program that brings Uyghurs into essentially coerced labor situations, residential labor situations where they have no movement. And those factories are working on the supply chains of lots of our favorite brands, you know, and, and on top of the comments of uh, the CEO and president of the, the um, Golden State Warriors, there, there's also been evidence recently that Burton Snowboarding has a store in the Uyghur region. And the CEO, when asked about it, said, well, I'm, I know nothing about this problem. And, you know, so I think, I think there's economic incentives not to push back on this um, with China, whether it has to do with the supply chains that um, you have in China, or whether it just has to do with the potential blowback of having uh, trade with China disrupted. And so I think that, that that really makes it a task that has to be taken on by consumer advocates, you know, people who you know, are basically talking with their pocketbook, whether they're buying things or not. You know, there's been, of course, you know, you can question on the success of it. You know, there's been attempts to do this in the past with uh, apartheid in South Africa, the boycott, divest, sanction movement in support of Palestine. And these movements, I think, you know, at least they keep this, the, the point on the agenda and, and make sure that there are some economic consequences for doing these kinds of things to an entire ethnic group. You said that you're not surprised that these economic factors have overwhelmed businesses and many Western policymakers in terms of taking concrete action in response to this campaign of repression. Are you more surprised that the cause of the Uyghurs hasn't resonated more in the broader Muslim world, which you characterize both in the book and other interviews as being mostly silent. Yeah, I'm somewhat surprised. You know, when I talk about states, it doesn't really matter if it's a Muslim-majority state or another state. The most Muslim-majority countries are, are heavily entangled with China economically. And I do think it's important to note that uh, I'm starting to see increased activism within uh, Muslim civil society with regards to this issue. And I think that that's important. 
But of course, it depends on uh, the state we're talking about and a state like Indonesia, where there is uh, a fairly robust civil society, it's on people's agenda. In Turkey as well. In Saudi Arabia, that doesn't happen because you don't have that civil society. You know, so I think it, it does depend. And in Central Asia, which, you know, is bordering on China, and there's, there's a significant Uyghur diaspora there, and there's other Turkic Muslims, uh, many of whom have been subjugated to the same policies as the Uyghurs inside China. There, the governments are also completely beholden to China economically, and they feel that there's no way they can push back. So, yeah, it, it's absolutely discouraging, but it's not entirely surprising. And, and in terms of the comment made by that uh, CEO, you know, I guess he was at least being somewhat honest from the perspective of the global business community. You know, I think it was uh, very insensitive because when I saw it, the first thing I thought of is there are so many Uyghurs in diaspora who are feeling so much pain because they have no contact with their their family members and they have no idea what's happened to them. And for those people, that was uh, that was very crushing to hear. On the question of language and how we talk about these issues, we've had a debate in Canada about whether it's appropriate to describe China's policy vis-a-vis the Uyghurs as a form of genocide. Two questions for you. One, do you think it's productive to use the language of genocide? And two, would you personally characterize Chinese policy as a form of genocide? Well, so first of all, I make the case in my book that it's very much similar to the cultural genocides that are usually associated with indigenous peoples. If we're talking about the First Nations in Canada, uh, Native Americans in the U.S., uh, Aboriginals in Australia, and so on, Th- this experience, I think, is is very, very similar, both in intent and in what's happening to the, to the uh, people as a whole. Now, there is a big debate, uh, and not being a legal expert, I don't know, you know, what's the right point of that in terms of whether we, we want to suggest that an attempt to wipe out a people's culture and identity should be considered genocide or whether it's only if it's involving mass killing, you know, that becomes kind of an academic and legal debate. But I do, I, I do think it's an interesting question you raise about the utility of using that language. And I was thinking about that earlier today, actually, because uh, reflecting on it, you know, I think it's had both positive and negative impact on the Uyghur movement to bring attention to what's happening. I think that, you know, it's positive in the sense that it does, it has gotten the world's attention. It's negative because then the, then the question is, is this genocide or not? Not, is this an atrocious violation of these people's human rights or not? You know, I think that in many ways, the, the intent of what's happening is very much to dispossess these people of their land destroy their identity, wipe out their culture, and forcibly assimilate them. And that's that's very similar to the experience, I think, that a lot of indigenous peoples have had 
And that's why I, uh, throughout what, much of my book, I, I, I bring up the parallels between the experiences of other indigenous peoples and that of the, the Uyghurs. The book, of course, is The War on the Uyghurs, China's Internal Campaign Against the Muslim Minority. Professor Sean Roberts, thanks for joining us today on Hub Dialogues and sharing your insights and analysis on this important topic. Yes, thank you for inviting me. And and also make uh, your listeners aware that there is an audiobook now as well of The War on the Uyghurs. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. We hope that this episode has expanded your horizons, maybe opened your mind to some new ideas and perspectives. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to share it with your friends and family. Subscribe and leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio editors are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening.